and turn to the Gospel of Mark. As I said, we'll continue in our exposition of uh, this uh, passage of Scripture. Uh, we're coming now, uh, believe it or not, to the very midpoint of the Gospel itself. Well, we're not there yet. We're coming very close to it. But the things that we're going to see here today are all going to have impact on the pivotal point in the Gospel of Mark and that'll be what we're going to see next week, where, well, maybe next week, because we might do a communion sermon next week, uh, but uh, very shortly in our next study in, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, where the Apostle Peter will confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. There will be this understanding, this embrace, this opening of the eyes of Peter and others that Jesus is all that he claimed to be. And what we're going to see here today by way of a preliminary approach to this is that our Lord Jesus Christ, in the final miracle that he will do in the, in the region of Galilee, in the final miracle that he will do there, he will give once again sight to a blind man. It's very interesting that the many times in the scriptures we read about Jesus Christ giving sight to the blind. And did you hear our passage uh, that was read this morning from Psalm 146? And did you notice how God himself said, I will give sight to the blind? Did you notice how God himself, again, exhibits his great power by way of giving sight to the blind? You remember last week when we looked at the, at the interaction that Jesus had with the Pharisees and they were all uh, upset and they were all desirous to see a sign from heaven. They wanted to see something, again, that would validate uh, the very miracles that Jesus was doing, was doing were actually miracles from heaven. And these, these miracles that we've seen over and over again, a passage of scripture like Psalm 146, they should have known that it's only God who can open the blinds of the, uh, the eyes of the blind. And it was true, they were truly messianic miracles, and they should have known that. You remember when the apostle, I'm sorry, when John the Baptist was in prison, and he sends his disciples to Jesus, and he says, Are you the one that we should seek, or should we seek for another? And what does Jesus say? You go and tell John that the blind receive their sight. You see, these miracles had all the stamps of messianic authority to them. There was no reason for the Pharisees to ask for uh, any kind of a validating sign. And so what we're going to see here is that our Lord Jesus Christ, after, after having left the Pharisees now in their blindness, will now do this one more miracle whereby he will give sight to the blind. The miracle itself is one of those interesting miracles in the, in the scripture. Every miracle is interesting. Miracles by their very nature are rare. They don't occur all the time. They're given to draw attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. This miracle, however, is particularly interesting because in this miracle, we're, we're, we're forced to ask a number of questions. We're going to see it's a miracle where the Lord Jesus Christ uh, does something unusual he actually spits in a man's eye. We think to ourselves, well, what's that all about? The, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, uh, asked the man if he sees clearly, and the man says something strange. He says, I see people walking as trees, and we think, what's that? And our Lord Jesus Christ fully gives him sight. And we're going to see all these things, so there's a number of questions that we have to ask about the text. But I think when it's all said and done, what we're going to see in this passage of Scripture is this, that our Lord Jesus Christ in spite of all the questions that surround the task, text, our Lord Jesus Christ shows us in this passage of Scripture this one great thing, that every act of mercy and grace that he undertakes, he brings it to completion. Every act of mercy and grace. Every act. An act of physical healing, he'll bring it to completion. 
An act of spiritual salvation, he'll bring the salvation. I'm sorry, he'll, be, he'll bring the completion. We're reminded of great passages of Scripture. He that begun a good work in you shall complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. We think of other passages of Scripture, like the passage of Scripture in Jude, verse 24, how that Jesus Christ is able to present us faultless before the throne of the Father. Faultless before the throne. Jesus will do that. He completes the work. And we're going to use this, we're going to use this miracle uh, to, to, to kind of set forth uh, uh, this great truth, that Jesus completes every act of mercy and grace that he undertakes. Well, by way of my approach to the text, I'm going to, I'm going to approach it in a way that's, uh, uh, again, because the text, unusual, the text is unusual, I'm going to approach it in something of an unusual fashion. I'm going to take a look at the passage. I'm going to present it to you along these lines. I'm going to present to you the man in his need and then the fulfillment of that need by the Lord Jesus Christ. We might say it's something like this, the blindness of the man and then the method of healing. But then what I want to do with this passage is I want to move from the blindness of the man to the blindness of man. Man, spiritually blind. And I want to show, as we saw the method of, as we will see the method of healing for this blind man, I want to show you the method of, of giving of sight that the Lord Jesus Christ does. The text is just there. No explanation by way of the gospel writer. No kind of uh, particular uh, insight from the text itself. And so what do we do with this text? Well, we do with this text what we ought to do with every text. We work through it. We examine it. So let's do that very thing. And the first thing I want you to notice here, as I said before, is the blindness of the man. And we can even go back a little bit and we can look at not only the blindness of the man, but we can look at the place where he's at. And notice what we have here in the passage of Scripture in verse, 20, uh, in verse 22. And he cometh to Bethsaida. Now this is interesting because Bethsaida has been uh, a place in the, in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ that has been uh, visited a number of times. Uh, Bethsaida is also interesting because from Bethsaida, a number of the, the, of the disciples had come. Andrew was from there. Uh, Peter was uh, from there. And so we see that Bethsaida was a, was a known place, we might say. Now, the word Bethsaida uh, means something like the house of fishermen or the house of fish. Uh, it, was a, it was a little village, a, a, a little village or a city. Where there's some question as to how big, the, uh, how big Bethsaida was. It was located on the, on the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. If you remember from your maps in the back of the Bible, you can turn there now if you want. In the back of your Bible, you have a map. And, and right where the River Jordan comes down into the Sea of Galilee, right to the east of that is Bethsaida. So there's our Lord Jesus Christ in that area again. And again, what we see here is as, they, or as he is in Bethsaida, we see something very heartwarming happening. Obviously, a blind man is not heartwarming. But what this man has is not much, but he has something going for him. doesn't have much, but he has something. What does he have? Amen, brother. That's right, he has friends. And that's worth something. You might think, well, that's kind of a, you know, that's kind of a nice little quaint observation to make. But I would remind you that this is significant. And the reason why it's significant is because later on in the 10th chapter, we're going to encounter another blind man. That man's a man by the name of Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus doesn't have friends. He has a savior, but he doesn't have friends. 
And what's interesting is this. There's Bartimaeus in, in Mark 10. And they came into Jericho. And he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people. And with a great number of people. Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the wayside begging. No friends for this man. And when he heard that Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And many charged him and said, keep calling Bartimaeus. That's not what they said. And many charged him, saying that he should hold his peace. How would you like to be Bartimaeus, calling out for Jesus and having the crowds around you say, hey, shut up, keep, keep it down, keep it down. But like it says, this man in our, in our passage here, he didn't have much, but he had friends. Now, I do want to spend a little bit of time with this because I do think that this is something that's significant uh, in the gospel accounts. That oftentimes we find individuals, friends, who bring their friends to the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said before, this is not a trivial observation to make on the text. I say this for a number of reasons. I say this because, again, we see over and over again in the scripture this very idea of people bringing their friends to the Lord Jesus Christ. Think, that we, what, think of what we've seen already in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 2. We had the man with the, that was sick with the palsy and his four friends brought him to Jesus. You remember, they, they opened up the roof and they dropped him down. These, these friends. We see here again uh, in uh, John chapter 1, verse 45, uh, Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses said in the law. Uh, and, the, and the prophets, they're right, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Here was Philip bringing his friend Nathaniel uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this idea of friends is very, very important. I dare say that most of you who are here and converted today have been, have been brought to faith in Jesus Christ, not so much in a, in a formal uh, setting like this where the gospel is being preached, I hope that that does happen from time to time. I certainly, when I preach the word of God, it is my intention to preach in such a way as to, uh, is, is, is that the spirit of God might use me as an instrument to, uh, to, to, to bring you to faith in Christ. But I would dare say that most of us have come to faith in Christ by way of a friend. You see, friends are vital in the whole reality of what it means as to God's ongoing work. This idea of friends, again, as I said before, no trivial observation. Uh, J. Hudson Taylor, uh, again, the great missionary to China, uh, in, the, in the late 1800s wrote a book entitled uh, China's Millions. And in that book, he had a number of letters. And one letter uh, reads as follows. He says, last month, owing to the examination of this prefecture, the city was very busy. And I had, the, I, I had the evangelist from Wu Hu helping me. And we, had, and we had preaching in the chapel forenoon and afternoon. Praise God, many came and heard glad tidings. And I am glad to say that the Christians are more lively and the attendance at the services better. And one of the inquirers, an old woman, brought six of her friends to hear the gospel. Oh, that those who hear and believe the gospel would bring their friends to Jesus. If every individual Christian brought their friends to Jesus, how soon would all know and enjoy the blessings of salvation? My friends, I'm telling you here that this is what we see in this passage of Scripture. And it is no trivial observation on the text to say that friends bring their friends to Jesus. Friends bring their friends to Jesus. Can I appeal to you today to bring your friends to Christ? 
Can I appeal to you to, to realize and to understand that you are at your best to your friend when you're bringing them to the Lord Jesus Christ? And aren't you glad that you have a Christ to bring them to? Your friends, sometimes you, 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 you engage your friends, you interact with your friends, and you find out very quickly how limited you are. And you're reduced very quickly to saying what? Well, I'll pray for you. Well, we can do more than pray. You can bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, may God give us such a love that issues in a boldness that says to our friends, look at Christ. Christ is there for you. What I said this morning, starting the sermon, the great, the great turning point of the Reformation is a word, for me. You can, say to, you can say to your friends, like Paul said of himself concerning that passage of Scripture in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. That Christ loved me and gave himself for me. And you can say that to your friends. I hope you can say it to yourself. As the Apostle Paul spoke to himself that way. He spoke about the great doctrine of justification there in, in Galatians chapter 2. And when all is said and done, what does he say? That Christ loved me. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, you see this, this vital reality of what it means to believe on Christ as dying, yes, for sinners... But for sinners, have you ever read John 3.16 this way? That God so loved Ricky, this guy right here, that he gave his only begotten son. But you see, this is the whole idea of what it means to come believingly to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I hope and I pray that you're able to put your name in there. And so this man had friends, and thank God for it. Thank God that these friends knew where to bring this man. The second thing I want you to see is this. They brought the man to Jesus, and then they besought Jesus. They begged Jesus, I think the ESV says. I think there's a pattern there for us. Yes, we bring our friends to Jesus, but oh, we go to, we go to our Lord Jesus Christ in prayer. Oh, Lord Jesus, have mercy on this one. Oh, Lord Jesus, show yourself as the great kind shepherd to this one. Oh, Lord Jesus, again, be the Savior. Be the only Savior that this man can ever have. Oh, Lord Jesus, show yourself kind. Even as you've shown yourself to me, show yourself to this one. And so they, they bring the man to Jesus, and then they beseech the Lord Jesus. Notice what we have here again in verse 22. And he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring to him a blind man, and, and besought him to touch him. Well, this brings us to another observation on the text. What do they desire uh, that Jesus would do for this man? They desire that Jesus would touch this man. You know, this is very, this is another thing that we see repeated in these gospel accounts. Uh, not only do we see friends bringing friends to the Lord Jesus Christ, we see the Lord Jesus Christ touching individuals. And so oftentimes, our Lord Jesus Christ is touching individuals that others in society would not even get within an arm's length of. But there was Jesus touching. He was touching this one and he was touching that one. Over and over again, we see this probably five or six times already up to this point in Mark. In Mark chapter 1, verse 31, he touched Peter's mother-in-law. In Mark chapter 1, verse 40, in a very surprising thing, he touched the leper. Again, the, the untouchable, he touches. In Mark chapter th uh, 3, uh, verse 10, we read this. He healed many and, and the result were all those who, uh, who pressed, this, uh, they, they pressed it, uh, upon him in order to touch him. And it goes on and on. The Lord Jesus Christ is always this one who is touching those in need. And what's happening here? Our Lord Jesus Christ is showing, again, his real, his real identity, his real, his real connection with those in need. And we can make application here. We can say that our Lord Jesus Christ is still touching. He's still touching individuals today. We sing the song, the little chorus there, He touched me, oh, He touched me. 
And, and again, we, we identify with this. And we know that there's not some kind of a physical touch going on, but all the touch of Jesus Christ, once you've experienced it, there's nothing like it. And so this man had friends. He didn't have much. He was blind. In one sense, he was to be pitied. But this man had friends. And this man had a Savior. He had one who was able to deliver him out of all of his affliction. And this one who was able to deliver him out of all of his affliction was the very one who the Pharisees refused to look at and refused to see as the very Messiah that was promised. And these, and, and these miracles should have cemented in their thinking that he indeed was the very one that the Scriptures prophesied of. This idea, give us another sign. What more do you need? And so here was our Lord Jesus Christ. Here was the blind man in his need. Now we come. We come now to. Um, we come now to the uh, the method of healing, and the method of healing, as I said before, the passage is a little bit of. Uh, there's there's some challenges here, uh, and the challenges are 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 are, uh, are are the questions that we are confronted with when we read the text. The text is very straightforward. It makes an attempt to hide nothing. It just states what happened. And notice again what we have here in verses uh, tw- uh, in verse twenty three. And he took him by he took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, he put and put his hands on him. He asked him if he saw aught. Now every every movement in this verse leads us to a question. The first question, well, maybe not the first question, but the first thing we observe, and it is somewhat touching, is that the Lord Jesus Christ not only touched the, man, the blind man, but he took the blind man by the hand. I think this is something, again, if you'll allow me to just continue with this idea of you bringing your friends to Christ, and of the Lord Jesus Christ touching your friends, and now the Lord Jesus Christ taking those by the hand. And again, it's just a wonderful picture to see what the Lord Jesus Christ even does today. But the question we're confronted with is, why did, why did our Lord take the man? Why did he take him out of, the, uh, out of the village? Well, with every one of the questions in this text, I have to say this, the text doesn't give us an answer. And so we have to be careful here. We have to be very, very careful here because we can try to answer a question that the Scripture is not giving us an answer to. I answer the question that the Scripture is not answer, uh, giving us an answer to. So we have to be careful. But can I suggest a couple of things? And they're just suggestions. May I suggest a couple of things? Maybe he's taking the man by the hand and leading him out of town to show something of a personal care for the man. This would not be a public audience with the man, but rather this would be a personal and private encounter with the Messiah. I'm back again to that little phrase of the Reformation, for me. There was this blind man. And he was probably thinking, the Messiah is for me. The Messiah is for me. Yes, he may be for the world, but he's taking me aside. He's leading me by the hand. I want that thought to be in your mind today. For me. And there's the Lord Jesus Christ taking it. Maybe that's why he was doing it. I don't know. Another interesting thing is that it could be that the Lord Jesus Christ was showing something that was shortly going to happen uh, to, to Bethsaida and the surrounding cities around the Sea of Galilee. Bethsaida, Chorazin, you remember those cities? And you remember what Jesus says to those cities? Woe unto you, Bethsaida. Woe unto you, Chorazin. These cities would be under the judgment of God. Uh, of God. Why? Because they refuse 
to believe on the Messiah that was sent. And could it be that when our Lord Jesus Christ took this man out of Bethsaida, that he was giving us a picture that even while cities and nations in judgment, and cities and nations may be under the judgment of the Messiah King, he still calls individuals out of those cities in order to save them. I believe God judges nations. I genuinely do. And I believe that our nation is ripe for judgment. I genuinely do. But I also believe that Jesus calls individuals out of those nations that he is about to judge and he takes them aside and he calls them out. Oh, you see the Lord Jesus Christ again. Why is he calling this man out? Because Jesus is for him. And why is he calling you out of this world of sin? Because Jesus is for you. And maybe that's the reason why he's doing it. Or maybe he's doing it, again, to, to, to just show that, uh, that their rejection, uh, the city's rejection was not, was not complete, that there were still an elect people, there were still people there. And it's the same in our day today. We think of our nation, and again, it's, 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 we're, 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 just un, we're just unbelievably, how can, are there even words to describe who and what, what we are as a nation? The things that we're guilty of, the sins that we embrace, the sins that we, that we, that we stick our chest out, the, the sins that even church is identified by. What's going on with this world in which we live? And maybe what's happening here is God is just saying to us, yes, that, that society may be, may be completely inebriated with their sin, but I have a people there. Isn't that what the Lord Jesus Christ said to the Apostle Paul when he went to Corinth? He says, I have many people in that city, many people in Corinth. God has people in Cape Cod too. Yes, sin-sick Cape Cod. God has, God has a people and he's calling them out as well. And so maybe this is why the Lord Jesus Christ took this blind man by the hand and let him out. I don't know. I really don't. This is all speculation I have here. And I don't care for speculating when I preach. But these are some of the thoughts that come to my mind as I think on the text. May God give you grace as you, as you think through these things. The second thing that catches our attention, not only that he brings the man out of the, uh, out of the village, but the second thing that catches our attention is that he spits on his eyes. Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's like, okay, well, what's going to happen here? Well, what's interesting is that this isn't the only time that our Lord Jesus Christ, to, to be, as, uh, to be as, uh, as, 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 as kind or as gentle as I can, this isn't the only time that the Lord Jesus Christ uses saliva. Now, it's interesting, we see this in John 6, where the man born blind, uh, that's where the Lord Jesus Christ spits and he makes a little bit of uh, mud and he, he applies the mud to the man's eyes. Uh, we saw it back in uh, chapter 7, when the Lord Jesus Christ spit and, and he, either, he either touched the man's tongue or he, or he spit upon the man's tongue. And what's interesting is this, is that, uh, again, it's just one of these things, we don't have an answer in the text. A couple of answers have been proposed. Now, when it, one answer goes something along like this, that in the ancient world, uh, saliva was, was, belie was believed to have some type of medicinal uh, effect. Uh, obviously not very much, but some type of a medicinal effect. Fair enough. Um, I have a, a quote along those, uh, along those lines. Uh, saliva was, believed, was widely believed to have healing properties in the ancient world. Uh, for example, the classical writers Celsus, Galen, and Pliny all mention its medicinal, medicinal properties, and it is possible that Jesus used saliva and some of his healings as a physical sign 
that, uh, that he was going to be healing the person involved. And the point that the writer is trying to make there, it's not that the saliva is actually the, the, the effectual means, but it was only symbolizing that Jesus was going to effect healing with a symbol that was, you, that was known in that day as having some type of medicinal uh, effect. Maybe, maybe not. We, 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 we just don't know. But the other uh, thing uh, that we see here by way of uh, this idea of our Lord Jesus uh, doing this, I, I think one of the things that uh, one writer brings out, I think we have to give some thought here. He says it could very well be that our Lord Jesus is using this somewhat odd um, method to veil the miracle. I thought that was interesting. And we see this throughout the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, where oftentimes he, he would be, ve- he, the miracle would be seen, but the, the miracle had to be seen, like in a sense, only in proportion to the place where Jesus was in his ministry. If, if, if the miracles were spread too wide before the Lord Jesus Christ was able to accomplish all that he needed to accomplish by way of setting out the necessity of his dying on the cross, there would be a sense in which the timing would be out. And so maybe this one very good commentator actually is saying that our Lord Jesus Christ may be trying to veil the miracle uh, through the use of something that was understood in that day to have medicinal properties. Again, we don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I can't give you any insight on that. We do know this, however, that in other places in the scripture that spittle was, uh, was a, uh, to spit on somebody was a sign of contempt. There's no two ways about it. We read Job is complaining and Job says this, they abhor me. They flee far from me, and they spare not to spit in my face. In Matthew chapter 26, when, when, the, when, when, when the people show contempt for Christ, what do they do? They spit on his face. They spit on him. We see this at least twice it's mentioned where Jesus Christ was spit upon. Well, as I said before, it was a, it was a sign of contempt. And so we really don't know exactly why our Lord Jesus Christ used his saliva, his spittle, to heal this man, but I... I would suggest to you this, that if you and I were blind and physically blind and uh, the Lord Jesus Christ applied saliva to our eyes in whatever way he saw fit, we would say, well, do as much of that as you need to do. Just allow me to see. And I'm going to get ahead of myself here, but I'm going to make the connection here. And I would suggest to you that if the Lord Jesus Christ said to you that through this very odd and very unique way of my giving you spiritual sight... Would you be willing for that to happen? And I think every one of us, I hope every one of us would say, my dear Lord Jesus, do all the spitting necessary to give me proper spiritual eyesight that I might see truly my need for your great grace in my life. Are you offended at that? See, our Lord Jesus Christ has a way of bringing us to the cross on our knees, doesn't he? Are there any who go to the cross with their chest stuck out and say, here I am. It's a good day for you, Lord. You got the right one coming to you now. Nobody gets saved like that. We come humbly, don't we? And when our Lord Jesus Christ humbles us on the way to the cross, it's the sweetest humbling that we can ever go through. Now, again, I don't know what, I'm telling you, I don't know why the Lord Jesus was using uh, these methods. I I, I can't give you a definitive answer. But we can think along these lines. 
And so we see the man in his need. We see, uh, we see the man in his blindness. We see uh, the, uh, the, our Lord Jesus Christ and the method that he used to heal this man. We see something else that's, that's a, little more, uh, a, a little more usual. It's not unusual. This is kind of us- usual, the next thing that we see. Once again, we see the prohibition to making the fame of the Lord Jesus Christ known. Now, you remember early in the gospel account we read, I think it was in, I think it was in the third chapter, we, we read about the, his fame went everywhere. The wonderful thing to think about the fame of the Lord Jesus Christ going everywhere. But as we've seen repeatedly in this gospel and in the other gospels as well, our Lord was, was very much concerned with how much of his fame spread uh, to, 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 to what degree, if I can say it that way. He, yeah, his fame had to be kind of curtailed, we might say. Now, there was a sense in which our Lord was putting the brakes on what many people would be more than w- willing to do, and that was to proclaim him as a great miracle worker. Well, that was the problem. He didn't come as a great miracle worker. He was, but that's not why he came. And that's why this passage of Scripture is bringing us right to the cusp of the pivotal point of the book. The pivotal point of the book is going to be the next section that we look at when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. When the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to Peter very, very clearly and very, very plainly that he must suffer and die for the sins of the world. Now, that's the thing. That's the pivotal thing. And once we understand that, once we understand that a Messiah comes on his own terms, on the terms that God sent him, and it's not for us to, again, take some great miracle worker and to, and to exalt him. It is for God himself to set forth his son in the time and in the way that he has decreed. And Jesus Christ must be known to you more than just a miracle worker. He must be known to you more than just a great teacher. He must be known to you as the very purpose for which he came. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And so again, this is, this is what we see. And so the prohibition we have here in the passage of Scripture, when our Lord says once again, uh, he, he says to the man, uh, neither go into the town, verse 26, nor tell it to any other in, not, not, nor tell it to any other in the town. Now this is interesting because what we could have, as I said before, obviously our Lord is, is restraining uh, his fame from going forward. But the other thing I want you to see is this, is that what could be happening here is that this could be another one of those indications of judgment upon Bethsaida. That while God, while the Lord Jesus Christ would save individuals in Bethsaida, Bethsaida itself is cut off from all this revelatory, of all the revelatory features of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ at this point. And what we see here once again is that, is that very, very, that, that, that awful reality of nations coming to a point where nothing is left for them but judgment. My friends, and this is why I say to you as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, do you understand the pivotal role that you play in the well-being of this nation? Do you understand how needed your prayers are for this people? Do you understand that without your prayers, where would this nation be? But I'm, this is another sermon for another time. And so here we see, we've seen the man and his blindness. We've seen the method of healing. But I want to begin to make something of a transition here now. And because the text is, again, is just a blank, not a blank, but just a, a, a setting forth of this information, I want to make a transition, but I want to use some caution. And the transition I want to make is this. Could it be that this passage of Scripture forms something of a parable spoken to us in our day? What do I mean by that? 
What do I mean by that? Well, you know how significant parables have been now in the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ since there has been that rejection of him. You remember there came a time specifically when he began to speak in parables. And so let me ask you a question. And I'm, a, I'm asking the question. I, 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 I can't be dogmatic on this. Could it be that this passage is a parable? Could it be that all of the questions that come up in this passage are designed so that the scoffers, when they want to scoff, will have an occasion for scoffing? And the mockers, when they want to mock, will have an occasion for mocking? And the unbelievers, when they don't want to believe, will have a reason for their unbelief? Could it be that? And then if that's the case, if this passage is somewhat parabolic, I'm not suggesting this, but if it's somewhat parabolic, that means that those who have eyes to see will see in the Lord Jesus Christ not reasons to disbelieve, but they will see reasons in the Lord Jesus Christ to continue to believe. They will say, yes, there are questions in the text, but let me get to the kernel of the text. And what's the kernel of the text? The Lord Jesus Christ completes the work of mercy he began in that man's life. And that brings it to you and me. Here we are. We are all afflicted with spiritual blindness, were we not? We've been, given, we've been given eyes to see. Oh, I once was blind, but now I see. Was lost, but now I'm found. And these eyes that see, very much, I didn't even get into the whole issue with the man when Jesus asked him to open your eyes, and he says, what do you see? He says, I see, I see men walking as trees. He sees, but he doesn't see everything clearly. Doesn't that sound a lot like the Christian life? How many times have we seen things in the, in the life of the Christian? Yeah, we see something, but when it's all said and done, we feel like we see men as trees walking. We don't have enough spiritual insight. I'm saying to you, the Lord Jesus Christ will continue and complete the work. And I think this is one of the reasons. Again, I can't say this on the authority of the text, and I don't like preaching this way, I have to admit it. But when I look at the passage of Scripture and I think our Lord Jesus Christ is dealing with this idea of blindness, just go back to verse 18 of, the, of, our, of, our, verse, of, our, of our chapter here. And you remember when the Lord Jesus Christ was, was in the boat and, and, and the disciples, just those, 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 those men who loved Jesus, those men who wanted to follow Jesus. Remember what he said to them in, in the 18th verse? Having eyes you see not and having ears you hear not, do you not remember? And so our Lord is dealing with these men who I don't think any one of us would say we love Jesus more than they did. I think the best we can say is we hope to love Jesus as much as they did. And these men were not able to see, even having the lane in front. So what needs to happen? The Lord Jesus Christ needs to continue to apply grace. You see, aren't you glad that Jesus finishes the work of mercy and finishes the work of grace that he begins? And I know there you are in your Christian life, and sometimes that's what the Christian life seems like. How you doing, brother? I think I'm seeing men walking. I'm men as trees walking. What do you mean? I can't figure out spiritually what's going on in my life. My brother, rest assured, the Lord Jesus Christ will finish the work he's begun. My brother, rest assured, the Lord Jesus Christ will present you faultless before the throne of grace. And so I think in this passage of Scripture, again, I'm kind of going out on a limb, but I think it's somewhat parabolic. The scoffer looks at this passage of Scripture. I'll spitting in somebody's eye. What's that? They get, and well, oh, so what Jesus, he, he, can't, he can't get the miracle right the first time? Is that what? This is not going on here. Is that our Lord Jesus Christ would not be able to heal at a very word? We know these things. But for the mocker, and for the one who doesn't believe, oh, it's one of those passages they'll run to. 
hate to say it, we have friends like that, don't we? <laughs> they come up with these things in the Bible and say, where'd you get that from? And there they are trying to undermine our faith. Why are they doing this? Because they think they're making a comment on the scripture. But the scripture is making a comment on them. It's their hard and unbelieving heart, you see. And so in this passage of scripture, I suggest that maybe it's something as a parable. And if it's a parable, then I ask you this. What do you see about our Lord Jesus? What do you see in this passage of scripture? Do you see a, a miracle worker who halfway gets it right and needs to reload and take another shot at it? Or do you see in this passage of scripture a savior who completes the work of grace and mercy that he's begun? And so some of you here, some of you are here and you're just starting out in the Christian life. And much of the Christian life is like men walking as trees. I can't get this, I can't figure this whole thing out. Rest assured, my brothers and sisters, God will bring you through, I'm telling you. I remember some of the best advice I got in my Christian life. I was only saved, I think, hours. And the young man who led me to the Lord Jesus Christ said, he said, read the Bible every day. He says, what you can't understand, don't worry about it. You got the rest of your life to figure out. But what you understand, make sure you do. It doesn't, you can't get much better counsel than that. You don't have to understand everything. I hope you do. But what you do understand, put it into action. And so some of us are starting, some of you are starting out, and as I said, it seems like men walking as trees. Others of us have been with Jesus for some time, like those disciples in verse 18. And we can't get it figured out. And the Lord Jesus says to us, are you, are you, do you have ears that can't hear and, and eyes that can't see? We were at a conference this week. I was very happy to see Rick and Carol there. Yeah, Richard and Carol. We were at a conference this past week uh, on, on Friday. And, and, and the speaker there was, was, was referring to this, this, these, this phraseology, which occurs in an Old Testament context, which always speaks about God's judgment upon a people. Oh, the stern language that Jesus is using with his disciples. You see, sometimes when we advance a little in the Christian faith, uh, can I say it this way? The Lord... He's not afraid to deal with us that way. He's not afraid to, to bring us into account for these things. And so here we are. Sometimes we're as, as blind as anything and as deaf as anything. And we think, oh, is there any hope? I've been at this thing for 20 years now. I've been at this thing for 15 years. I've been at this thing for 30 years and I can't get this thing figured out. He finishes what he begins. Some of you may be coming to the end of your life here on earth. No end of life, but maybe to the end of your life here on earth. And you might think, do I have the strength? Do I have the vision to get to the end? Don't you know that he that began a good work in you shall complete it until the day of Christ Jesus? Don't you know that the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 29-39 is preaching to you right now? Don't you know that the Lord Jesus Christ himself will present you faultless before the throne? Why? Because he that begins every act of mercy and grace completes it until the end. And I believe he's used this episode in the, past, in, in the gospel account here to let us see no halfway works done in the gospel. He does a full work. He brings all of his children home to him. This good shepherd leaves no, no sheep behind. 
And my brothers and sisters, whether you're starting out in this walk, can I encourage you? Oh, it's a wonderful walk. It's a glorious walk to live for the glory of God. To those of us who are in the midst of it, don't give up. God's work is not done in you. To those of you who may be thinking, well, maybe my crowning day will be very soon. You see, this God, this Savior, this great shepherd who starts a work, finishes it. And oh, by the way, it finishes to the glory of God and to your, and to your everlasting joy. Let's pray.